This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Witness Docs from Stitcher. A note to our listeners before we get started. This story contains descriptions of assault and sexual violence. So I'm going to create a couch surfing profile. Join. Holy crap. Okay, so I have not even created my profile yet. I used a fake name and it's already telling me that I can get verified. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. So with everything we've told you about Dino Maglio and his crimes, what we haven't talked about is couchsurfing. What were they doing about Dino? And what did they do when the women who met with him on their site reached out? First off, you should know, The women who reported Dino's crimes to the justice system and then to the earpee reporters, they also alerted couchsurfing. Remember Kate from Montana? British police brought her allegations to couchsurfing, and the website took action. I think they took his profile down right away. That's what the police officer told me. He reached out to couchsurfing right away, and they confirmed, they showed me, like, that afternoon— His profile's gone. But that didn't last. And I found out, allegedly, he just set up a new profile right after. But clearly, he was able to do it because I'm not the only woman. And mine was not the last case. Maria, the young woman from Portugal, connected with Dino, who was calling himself Leonardo through that new profile. That was after Couchsurfing had, quote, banned him. And Maria, if you remember, wrote him a negative review. A few days after she posted it, someone from Couchsurfing's safety team reached out asking her for more information. Here's what she wrote to them. Hi, this is Maria. I received an email from you today because of a negative reference I left for Leonardo. And I would actually like very much to talk to someone in the safety team about what happened. But would it be possible that you give me some way of really talking to you instead of writing? Like Skype, for example. It would be so much easier because there's a lot for me to say and to ask, and having a conversation this way is very uncomfortable. Thanks for caring and for your concern. Someone from the couchsurfing safety team named Allie wrote back. Hello, Maria. Thank you very much for getting back to us about this. I'd be happy to talk to you about what happened. We do all of our communication by email, so we have a record of our conversations. Maria really didn't want to handle this in email. But Couchsurfing was giving her no choice, so she wrote it all up. Her horrible experience at Dino's, the drugging, the forced kiss, everything. Allie responded, 
they traded messages for a week. Allie encouraged Maria to go to the police. Allie even put her in touch with other people who'd stayed with Dino. In fact, the exact same day that Maria complained to Couchsurfing about Dino, Eileen, one of the other women who'd stayed with Dino, was also writing Allie to let her know what Dino had done to her. So Allie connected them. She also told Maria that the safety team had removed Dino's new profile from the platform. Allie also wrote, quote, We are actively looking for new profiles from this person. If we find duplicates, we remove them immediately. But then, of course, Dino continued setting up new profiles and luring in new women and assaulting them. This went on for another year. Whenever he got shut down, he just kept starting over. The fact that Dino could do that, with impunity, goes against everything Couchsurfing says it stands for, which is creating better connections between people. The whole idea of Couchsurfing, when it was founded 10 years earlier, was to make it easy to find the good, generous people in a town. It was to help travelers experience new places and cultures through the eyes of the people who live there. Um, it's really a backstage pass to the world. You want to get, you want to see what the world is about. You want to grow yourself. You want to have these adventures. Couchsurfing, right? It's, it's a way to interact with people all over the world. This is Casey Fenton, the founder of Couchsurfing. He's talking with Peter Layden, the founder of reInvent, and the YouTube series called The Future of Sharing. Casey was an idealistic 20-something when he founded the site in 2003. Um, I, you know, people, when they travel around the world, it's really hard to do all that. And when you get that, that, that gift where a local gives you um, a place to stay and some food, that's a really beautiful thing. Casey's called his venture an experiment in trust, a social network for travelers, even newbies. I think the story of Couchsurfing began back, boy, way back in my teens, um, I was, uh, will I be here in this town of Brownfield, Maine for the rest of my life? So I started thinking about how I could escape. What was my escape plan? The couchsurfing concept began with some pretty lofty ideas. Um, I was uh, in, in school and I started learning about the classic philosophers, Kant, Kant, Hume, Descartes. started thinking about free will and started wondering, do I have free will? So I basically just started buying random flights to all over the world. And in that... Uh, started to discover that spending time with locals was accelerating my awareness, just personal growth, like all of these dimensions, and that if I could do that more, that that would be a good way to figure out what I want to do here on this earth. And um, so I started pondering couchsurfing, and I started putting this idea together. So for Casey, travel opened him up to new worlds and new people, like nothing else could. He inspired some other people to work on this idea with him, too. This was before companies like Uber or Airbnb. So the whole idea of a sharing or gift economy was super new. The concept was idealistic, and no one was actually sure it would generate money. People donated their time to work on it. People like Casper, who worked as a technical lead. It was a bit chaotic in a way. Like, it was a lot of chaos. Um, I fixed bugs. Tried to add some features to the website. I, I was onboarding people to to work on it. 
Um, it was a non-profit uh, back then. Um, I also, I, I thought, I had a big vision there. Like I thought Couchsurfing could be, should be open source. Uh, it can be this, this thing like, like Wikipedia in a way, but then for sharing things like a platform to do, to share much more than, than a couch. Uh, thing was providing food and lodging like at these collectives. So I, I was very happy to work on this because I, I saw like this huge potential for it. And of course, the potential was real. The sharing economy has transformed our lives and how we do business. Just think of how often you've taken a Lyft or an Uber or stayed at an Airbnb. The sharing economy in many ways is a return to a form of commerce that was fairly common in the 18th century and maybe the early 19th century, um, peer-to-peer exchange. This is Arun Sundarajan, a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. He says digital platforms restore behaviors that used to work between friends or in the town square before big businesses took over. I think what the sharing economy has brought back is the idea that you can get a good or a service from another individual, but rather than being restricted simply to the people in your social network or the people in your village or the people in your neighborhood, um, you now have a new form of global commerce mediated or enabled by platforms like Airbnb, like Uber, like Turo. And that's what the founders of Couchsurfing saw coming. A world of community, of hand-to-hand transactions. Casper says that was the ethos. It was like very um, festivalist, like Burning Man. Um, so, so I think Casey always meant to do the right thing. But to my taste, it was very American. Casper ended up leaving because the whole sharing is caring community spirit didn't last. The final straw was when he was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So Casper left, and in the years since, the company has taken off. It grew from 100,000 users to 500,000 in just one year. That was 2006 to 2007. And these days... The company boasts 14 million members. Along the way, Couchsurfing became a for-profit company. And I'll explain where their revenues come from in a second. But the message of the company has never wavered. Couchsurfing is a fun and engaging community founded on giving and sharing. Hi, my name is Jennifer Billick. I'm Couchsurfing CEO, and today I'm going to show you our amazing office space. Jennifer Billick was Couchsurfing CEO from 2013 to 2015, during the time that Dino assaulted the women in our story. In this clip, she's giving CNBC a tour of Couchsurfing's sleek San Francisco headquarters. Swings hang from the ceiling, there are standing desks, catered lunches, and a place to unwind. This is our bar. We call it the social engine. Every Friday, we gather around here and we talk about how the week has gone. I'm going to make myself a drink and maybe one for someone else, too. Cheers. Of course, 
Billick's job was to project the best of Couchsurfing and convey its spirit. And there's no reason to assume that she personally would deal with complaints like Maria's or Kate's. But while she was marching through those offices for the CNBC tour, it's useful for us to know that there were already a lot of other claims of abuse through the Couchsurfing platform. Julio, the Earby reporter, found those stories easily in 2013. There were also cases that had already went to court and where the host of Couchsurfing had been, had been condemned for rape and sexual violence. Now, one could argue that on 10 million users, the rape cases are, uh, are insignificant statistically, right? But still, they are not rare enough. And when they happen, the damage is huge and, and there is nothing that can be done to undo that damage. Until pretty recently, most of us were taught about stranger danger, right? You don't talk to strangers, and you definitely never, ever get into a stranger's car. These days, millions of people do just that. They put their children, their grandparents, into cars driven by people they have never met. And here's the weird part. Arun Sundarajan, the sharing economy expert, says the overall trust between people is actually at its lowest point in decades. So 80% of the U.S. population under the age of 35 doesn't feel that their fellow human beings are trustworthy. But he says what we're seeing on these sharing platforms is a form of trust that is totally engineered. Our own confidence in our ability to make assessments based on digital information has grown. Because over the last decade, we've looked at Yelp reviews, gone to a restaurant after that and had a good experience. We've looked at TripAdvisor reviews and planned our vacations. We've read Amazon reviews and bought our products. And over time, I think each of us individually has come up with our own way of processing that digital information and then taking this leap of trust. Because if you think about it, I mean, what is trust? It's a willingness to commit to a collaborative effort before you know how the other party is going to behave. This is what makes Couchsurfing successful. Great, clean graphic design that prioritizes people's reviews and makes you feel like, hey, I'm making an informed decision here. But the truly careful Couchsurfer is looking for more than those reviews. You're also looking for a bright green checkmark. This kind of badge is common on social platforms. It's blue on Twitter, Instagram, and on TikTok. And YouTube has a gray one. And that verified mark is meant to signal that everything checks out. It gives some layer of authenticity and safety. But on couchsurfing, what does that checkmark really even mean? We wanted to find out what it would take for a new profile to get verified on couchsurfing. What if you're using a fake name the way Dino Moglio did? Can you still get verified? Journalists have strict rules about using fake names. 
But for the sake of this experiment, our team got sign-off to try this in real time. So um, what is verification? Okay, so here's the overview. Members who go through the verification process confirm they have an active bank account, valid phone number, and verified home location, as well as verifying a person's identity. First, I need to create a profile. So I'm going to create a Couchsurfing profile, join. Okay, and so when I'm joining, I just have to put in my name, person, last name. What if I put like a different name? Will that work? Should we try that? Okay. I'm going to put in a different name and see what happens. All right. I'm putting in the name Carmen Cruz. So it is now taking me to, it took me to another page. It says create account. This information helps us fill out your profile so the couch surfing community can get to know All you. All right. So I'm going to put in a birthday and make it up. And I'm going to say that she lives in Tampa. Okay. Create an account. We're off to a good start. Yeah, so right here, as soon as I am taken to this page where I get to fill out the rest of my profile, the, the first thing you see, you see right up at the top, confirm my email so I can confirm. And then right underneath that is a big green check mark and it says get verified. Verify with credit card. It's already telling me that I can get verified if I pay $60 if I put in a credit card number. I, I basically went to a gas station and I bought a prepaid credit card. It's a prepaid visa. And I put $60, $60 on it and it doesn't have any of my personal information on it. And there's really no tracing it back to you. This is a perfect way to purchase things if you don't want any sort of trail back to who you are. Okay, filling out the numbers on the card. Okay, the month and the CVC on the back. Okay, verify my account. So there's this a wheel spinning as I wait to see if I got verified. It just I just took me to a new page that says, congrats, you're now verified. Your payment has been verified. So that was it. I didn't have to verify my email address. I didn't have to verify anything. All I did, all I did was use this prepaid credit card that I had put $60 on that doesn't have my, it's not attached to my name. It's not attached to my bank account. It's not attached to anything. And I was able to verify in, I don't know, 15 seconds or less. I'm a member. I'm a I'm a paid member of the Couchsurfing community. I'm ready to start hosting right now. Actually, I'm not hosting anybody. This is all fake. So, um, so I am going to deactivate this account. This was really just as a little experiment to see how valid this verification process really is. How legit it is. Just to be clear, we deleted that account immediately, and it was never used to interact with the public in any way. If you dig a little deeper on the website, to the Terms of Use page, you can find the place where Couchsurfing spells out all the rules about who gets to be verified. 
Oh, look at this. We do not investigate or verify any member's reputation, conduct, morality, criminal background, or any information members may submit to the services other than the address verification tool as described in section 3.3, which is what we were just reading. Um, they're not doing any kind of criminal background checks or, or much of anything. The only thing that they're really checking is your address. I don't see how that's actually going to keep you safe. I mean, you just don't know very much about the people that you're interacting with at all. They could lie. They could be lying about their name. They could be lying about their age. They could be lying about a whole number of things. Now, most of the time, things are fine. People don't lie. It all works out. But if you do catch someone in a lie or have any safety issue to report, there's a link to contact the Couchsurfing Trust and Safety Team. We click here and let's see where that takes us. Okay. So this takes us to a page that is basically a form that you fill out. It says submit a request. Um, this is not helpful if you're in an emergency because there's no one, there's no email here. There's no phone number. There's no person to talk to. There, you just have to fill out this form. I thought maybe I could find an actual person in the section about the team at Couchsurfing. But it just displays a blurb about how much people love working there. There are no pictures with uh, staff members' photos. There are no emails. Again, I'm just not seeing any way to communicate and contact anyone. So I don't know who I'm talking to. Um, I can't even find out where Couchsurfing is located. There is no address here either. So it doesn't tell me much about who can I talk to if something happens to me and I find myself in an emergency situation when I'm traveling abroad using Couchsurfing. Still, they insist that safety is a top priority and that they've expanded their trust and safety team. Here's what they write about it. We do not simply pay lip service to safety. It's at the heart of everything we do. If they're not just paying lip service and this is so important to them, then why aren't they being a little bit more transparent about who is on the safety team and how to contact them? Julio was the ERP reporter who spent a lot of time digging into couchsurfing. Now, he knows that companies can't prevent bad actors from coming into their systems. But what didn't make sense to him is why Dino was able to keep making new profiles over and over again. Because after all, he was always using the same address and the address is registered on Couchsurfing. So, of course, they, they if, if all the data of that profile were flagged, they, they, would have under, they would have found all of his multiple profiles. Now, you know, so, um, so yes, I do believe that they could have done much more. Even if Dino was using different names and creating profiles from different devices and different IP addresses, he would always use the same three pictures and the same location. How did this slip by Couchsurfing? Ultimately, we decided to write to Couchsurfing and to have them answer our questions. Our first email was sent on January 27, 2015. Uh, 
Dear safety team, we are a team of investigative journalists belonging to Italy's Center for Reporting IRPI. And we are working on the case of an Italian alleged serial rapist who registered from, for some years as Leonardo Maglio on couch surfing. According to the Giulio actually got a response directly from Jennifer Billick, the CEO, only in writing. He learned that in 2015, Couchsurfing had 10 million users, a staff of just over 20 people, and all of the safety concerns and complaints were handled internally. So basically, even if all 20 of them were only doing security team uh, on 10 million users, it would have been half a million users per member of their community to police. It's clearly impossible. It's clearly impossible. Here's Giulio reading one of the emails he received. In order to minimize risk of abuse of member safety and security, we do not disclose specific information about our internal tools and procedures. We have systems in place to track and take action against abuse in the system. Sharing those processes and procedures would give potential system abusers knowledge to better infiltrate the system and would be detrimental to the safety of our community, of the community. Julio continued emailing Couchsurfing up until 2018 to try to get more answers, but he never heard anything back. And then in 2019, our team here at Verified decided to try again. For a company that says it's all about openness and communication, they make it very difficult to find someone to talk to who works there. Hey, this is Josh. You've reached my phone. Sorry I'm not available, but leave a message. We called all of the phone numbers we could find and left a bunch of voicemails. Hi, Josh. This is Natasha Del Toro. I am a journalist and I'm working on a podcast that involves couchsurfing. The only person that we heard back from was the chef at Couchsurfing's office in San Francisco. He sent us a text saying he couldn't talk because he had signed an NDA. We sent over 40 emails to all of the current and former employees we could find and only got a few notes back saying, thanks, but no thanks. We really wanted to sit with someone in management and explore all these issues face to face. After many emails back and forth over the course of several months, Couchsurfing declined our interview request with this email. Dear Rachel, Natasha, Suzanne, and the rest of your team. Couchsurfing member safety is a top priority. Unfortunately, publicly disclosing our policies and procedures may have an inadvertent negative impact on member safety. Couchsurfing employs a comprehensive range of tools tailored to protect our members. A sample includes a dedicated 24-7 safety team, a robust reference system, identity verification, with checks against multiple bad actor lists, member education, automated risk detection using multiple homegrown and third-party systems, and a zero-tolerance policy for risky or inappropriate behavior. They went on to say that Dino Maglio had abused his position and had gotten away with his crimes right under the nose of his colleagues on the police force, and that all organizations are susceptible to bad actors. They said they stand in solidarity with the survivors. We respectfully caution against assumptions or presumptions with respect to couch surfing simply because one may be proceeding on limited or incomplete information. Thank you for your interest in couch surfing and the safety of the couch surfing community. The couch surfing media team. That 
was their final communication with us. After four years of interview requests from Earpi and then us at Verified, the answer is simply no. So we could never really see Couchsurfing's digital safety mechanisms up close. But according to Professor Sundarajan's research, the story of these women's attempts to warn other women highlights a wider truth about digital trust. It's simultaneously sobering and terrifying that something like this, this systematic criminal activity, was conducted through couchsurfing. And beyond the personal tragedy for the women in question, um, it's sobering to me because um, it highlights something that we've known for a while, that digital trust systems by themselves are not sufficient. And any platform that wants to play in sort of like, you know, the global economy um, has to supplement their digital trust system with all of these other forms of trust, like, you know, the human-provided element. Professor Sundarajan says this is where couchsurfing differs from some of the other sharing economy platforms that have more scale. For example, Airbnb. And so, again, going back to the example of Airbnb, there are close to a 1,000 employees of Airbnb working full-time every day on trust and safety. These are not data scientists who are sitting and building new digital trust systems. This is almost like a, um, I wouldn't call it a police force, but a private sort of group of people who are looking out for and dealing with breaches of trust. And um, this underscores the fact that a platform like Airbnb recognizes that simply leaving things to the digital realm, simply leaving things to verified ID and Facebook and LinkedIn and online reviews isn't sufficient. Julio has reflected on this too. And he says, in the end, there is really only one person to hold accountable. Dino Maglio. (laughs) <laughs> who is to blame, of course, the, the main person that we have to blame and uh, we shouldn't move the focus too much around is Dino Maglio. He created a very complicated and refined system to lure, drug and rape women from all over the world. He did it methodically. He did it in a mm, textbook serial way. Um, he was extremely prepared, and he also had some backup plans when he got caught and, of course, blamed the victim as usual um, and and tried to create a man-to-man relationship with the police that caught him. But um, I I wouldn't go around too much, and I I think that (laughs) the blame is exactly where it should be with with the culprit. And in our next episode, that culprit will face some very angry women in court. They could decide five years later, okay, whatever, we're not going to go to trial because it's too stressful, we're just going to forget. But they decided not to forget. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. This season of Verified is reported by... Alessia Tarantula, Cecilia Onassi, and Giulio Rubino of Irpi, Investigative Reporting Project Italy. 
It's written and produced by me, Natasha Del Toro, Suzanne Reber, senior producer Dan Bloom, Bruce Edwards, Rachel Aronoff, Joey Fishground, and Shreya Nandi. Additional production by Grant Hill. Our editors are Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Ellen Weiss. Engineering by Casey Holford, Bruce Edwards, and Robin Wise. Our theme and original music are by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to Andrew Haig for our collaboration with Ground Source. We are particularly grateful to the many women who spoke with us, both on and off the microphone, and trusted us to tell their story. Verified is created by Suzanne Reber and executive produced by Suzanne Reber, Ellen Weiss, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. The show is produced by Scripps Washington Bureau in collaboration with Witness Docs, a Stitcher network. There's so much more for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod and at VerifiedPod on Instagram and Facebook. Or you can write to us at VerifiedPod at Stitcher.com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. Thanks for listening. <laughs>